All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow 777 Radio, episode 164. Athan Kamente, who is a sidereal astrologer, is with me. And Jason Lindgren, of course, is with me. You know, I've spent a lot of time trying to learn about the sky clock and to communicate to people that this kind of astrological hocus-pocus we've been shown has led us away from the true fact that the sky clock matters and it governs our world in a lot of different ways. In hour two, I actually demonstrate by using the Great Barrier Reef, one of the largest organisms in the world. It spawns same time every year. That's because of the sky clock. Right now where I am in Rhode Island, I'm waiting to see the horseshoe crabs, an apparently very ancient-looking creature, show up on the shores. When it happens, I will look up to the sky because I understand the phase of the moon and the sky clock are governing that. In the same way, I understand my garden is out there growing. I've observed for many years. One of the things is that I know that certain herbs I grow during a full moon will be more potent. Anyhow, we delve into a thing called sidereal astrology to compare and contrast other methods that people use to try to understand the sky clock. This is wholly about learning, and this is wholly about admitting that we're all wearing diapers and all of us want to grow up and know some information that's been lost to us. Let's jump in with Athen and Jason and check out Sidereal Astrology. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 164, and uh, Jason Lingard is with me, and we have Athen. I think it's Kamente. He can correct me when we get him in here. Um, he's going to be talking about the sky clock and ways to interpret the sky clock. He has a channel, which you'll identify, which is focuses on what's called sidereal astrology. And we'll give definitions for all kinds of astrology, um, which basically comes down to people all over the world with different methods trying to interpret the sky clock, um, as human beings have done probably since the beginning of time. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a fine good morning to you. All right. What do we have for the intro here? There's a couple things I'd like to mention about the modern day book burning, but what do you have? We're going to be doing on the day that this is released, which is Thursday, we're going to be doing a live stream with Jaron on his YouTube channel, Jaronism, at 5 p.m. Eastern time. It's just going to be an open discussion on a lot of things. We're going to run for at least an hour, but we're going to see how it goes. So hopefully a lot of folks will join us there. All right. So people should be aware that what we're doing now is we're trying to build bridges in every direction to almost any YouTube channel or presence online um, to try to to speak in a way that doesn't require search engines. Um, this is what I was going to mention. It's There was a time not too long ago when my YouTube channel picked up minimally 100 subs a day. Those days are long gone now. Every single day, nearly, I have negative sub numbers. Um, I've gone out on some big shows. As a matter of fact, I picked up a 1,000 subs in a single day when I went out on one of these big shows, and the following day, I was back into negative numbers. Even when the hit count goes up, every, every other number goes up, my sub count goes into negative numbers, which I can show is a manipulation because historically, this was not the case. Um, people remember, and I'll just reiterate this real quickly so we can let people know that if people don't stand up for the rights of free speech, it's all going to go by the wayside online. Um, back in the fall of 2017, my YouTube channel was deleted by YouTube. Um, the day before that happened, if you put Crow 777 in a search engine, you got 16 million plus returns. Uh, the day they put my channel back, which was roughly two to three weeks later, my name searched online returned six 
8,000. So from 16 million plus down to six. Currently for me, and this depends wholly on geography, now that they have their AI algorithms, I get about 60,000 returns on my name. But here's the rub. If you search Lunar Wave, many places in the world will give you more than a million returns still on Lunar Wave. If you add Crow 777 to the tail of it, it goes down into the thousands. So uh, the censorship is real. And I think it depends wholly on what people are willing to put up with. After all, if you're not involved in hate speech or other things that are unsavory, there is no reason for this censorship. Anyhow, that's all I've got to say about that. One last shot before we get Anthony in here. Anything you want to add, Jason? We, of course, are still looking to go out on as many shows as possible. So open door for anyone who wants to throw some suggestions our way. Or if anyone wants to reach out to us directly, please do. My email is secretsofsaturn at gmail.com. And Crow's is crow777 at gmail.com. All right. Um, this is the new way forward as far as we can tell. And by the way, you'll notice in the descriptions of everything I put on YouTube, I put the web address to my private website. That is no longer clickable for some reason. And not only that, I got a warning from YouTube when they put my channel back that if we put links in the description that pulled people away from YouTube, that could be a reason to close your channel. I'm not even kidding. Have, has anyone ever seen a video put up um, that mattered where there weren't links in the description? Well, at this point, search engines are killing search returns and even links on YouTube will not drive traffic over to my private website. So we're basically going to go out and meet as many people as we can. Anyhow, let's do this, Jason. Let's get Athen. Uh, welcome, Athen. And if I butchered your last name, let's correct it here. Oh, thanks for having me on, Crow. And yeah, Chimenti. Actually, you said it correctly. It's actually Chimenti, but uh, our family goes by Chimenti. So either way is totally cool. Okay, cool. Glad to have you here. Um, and I'm hoping we can give a broad overview in the first hour of the different types of methods people use to try to understand what I call the sky clock in some way. But before we get started here, why don't you tell people the name of your YouTube channel so they can check out your work using sidereal astrology, and we will define what that means. Yeah. Um, so the website's masteringthezodiac.com. There's also a YouTube channel by the same name. Uh, if you just Google it, you'll find uh, both links there. But yeah, we cover uh, daily uh, forecasts in terms of where the planets actually are in the sky, uh, which we'll look at. And um, on the website, there's some resources in terms of using these actual constellations, which is different from the mainstream system, which um, all of that is there at masteringthezodiac.com. Okay, so we should probably jump in and give some definitions real quickly because there are a lot of different methods for doing this. Um, on crow777radio.com, there have been massive forums of people simply trying to determine what's the length of a year. And if you do that, you end up having to choose a method. How do you decide how long a year is? Not only that, they're challenging when is an equinox and when is a solstice. So again, you have to choose a method. So let's, out of the gate, define what it means to use sidereal astrology. So yeah, so, so sidereal by definition is using any type of, in this case, with sidereal astrology, it's an astrological system based on using the actual sky, basically, which is kind of, it sounds like a complete like misnomer because you would think that uh, astrology would be using the actual sky. But unfortunately, um, in especially mainstream Western uh, astrology, it's not. In fact, it's usually off by at least a sign and sometimes up to two signs in difference. So Sidereo is saying we're using the actual sky. Now, even with other forms of astrology like Vedic, which we can get into, uh, they use an even 30 degrees for each of the constellations. So they're basically giving an equal 
proportion of the sky to each of the constellations. But um, if you use true sidereal, or what I call true sidereal, is you're using the actual size of the constellations in the sky. So there's no other system in astrology that utilizes that, unfortunately. And in this case with sidereal, we're taking all of that into account. Okay, so basically, let me recap real quickly. Um, when people think of a sky clock, they would assume that each of the little divisions uh, that we call the zodiac would need to be the same size. Um, we're going to address these things, but sidereal, correct me if I'm wrong here, is basically focusing on stars and fixed stars play into it. If that's correct, can you just kind of define that? Okay, so yeah, the stars, the, the luminaries uh, in the sky are essentially representing certain qualities of the human experience. So from an astrological standpoint, what we see is the sky is representing different aspects of the human experience. And so when a planet is, let's say, activating a star next to a star, it represents bringing out that side of ourselves, of life, those qualities um, being sort of activated at that particular point in time. All right. So, you know, a lot of people have probably looked at the word fixed stars and looked it up. Um, is there a difference in sidereal astrology between what most people would assume a fixed star is? Like uh, one of the ones you'll think is, I think the heart of Leo, is that Regulus? Am I getting that right? Is one of the fixed stars also called a royal star? Is there a difference there? In terms of what we call a fixed star, because in certain forms of astrology, there will be basically four stars that are always referenced as fixed stars. Oh, you're talking about the fixed stars. Yeah. So yeah, those are those are the actual stars that we're using. Uh, and they're actually visible in the sky. The difference is, is that in mainstream astrology, they'll say something is activating Regulus, for example, but it's not actually in that constellation. That's where the real that's where it really gets funny because technically things will be in Virgo. They'll say things like they'll say things will be in Virgo, and then they'll say it's activating Regulus. But yeah, Regulus is actually in Leo. So using this system, we're actually using the visible location of these fixed stars. Yeah. All right. To make that perfectly clear, this is why so many people that take a careful look at the ideas we're expressing come away thinking this is all hokum. Basically, the sidereal astrologer, and if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I think the Vedics too, they look up and they work with the sky they see. But there are other forms in the West, mostly of very popular forms of astrology, which have been convinced to throw away the sky we see and do this whole other thing. And a lot of that is based on the procession of the equinoxes, which I don't accept. But Athen, do you want to take a run at trying to define uh, why there are methods of so-called astrology that basically ignore what we see in the sky and recalculate it based on the idea of procession? Yeah, that's that's the number one question there. So the way I see it is that when these systems were created, these false systems, as I call them, or just simplified systems. Um, this was back during the sort of Babylonian and pre-Babylonian time periods when we were starting to invent calendars. And so to make it very simple, to make a calendar, you need consistency. So they simplified the constellations to be an even 30 degrees, much like we have a clock, you know, each time is given an equal allotted amount of time, right? Each hour is given an equal allotted amount of time. So that's essentially what these um, calendars were in the sense of simplifying the astrology to make it humanly perfect or humanly you know, equal in each of the signs. So ever since then, astrologers have been using these simplified systems, including Vedic astrologers. So Vedic astrologers over in India, they also use um, an even 30 degrees, even though they use sidereal. So they are using 
somewhat the actual sky, but again, they're simplifying the constellations to be not actually where they are in the sky. All right. So just so everybody knows, if you went and looked at the constellations that we call the Zodiac, there's 12 of them. The reason we call them the Zodiac is because just to be very simplistic about it, it's how we place the sun in a year, right? It's the only, really the only way we do have to place the sun in a year. What constellation is apparently behind the sun? If you look at the size of each constellation, your logical mind would want to tell you each constellation needs to be an equal division. And this is where a lot of people in my forums and, and myself started to say, wait a minute, that none of this makes any dang sense at all. And they'll make them 30 degrees a piece so that 12, 30 degrees each makes a 360, a full circle. In truth, when you look up and you can look up the size of each, each constellation in the Zodiac, they're all different sizes. But Athen, I want to drop this on you. When we started digging into this, I took a trip to a very old library and I got a hold of a sky chart from the 1600s. And uh, the reason I did it is because I had focused in on the sign that we were told gets the fall equinox called Libra, which incidentally is an odd duck on a number of accounts. Uh, it's the only it's the only thing in the zodiac that's not a living thing, right? <laughs> it's this mechanical scale, but. I noticed that the two main stars for most astrologers in Libra are called Zubinel Shanubi and Zubinel Shamali. And when I translated those from the old Middle Eastern languages that they apparently came to us in, I discovered that they mean the northern claw of the scorpion and the southern claw of the scorpion. And so this started a whole massive forums on my site because what we were simply trying to do was pin down when does an equinox truly happen and when does a solstice truly happen. What we discovered is that when you look at a sign like Libra, it looks like it just got kind of jammed in there. And how can the two main stars in Libra actually have once been called the northern and southern claws of the scorpion, which is the next sign that follows? And I know this is all a bit confusing, but I wanted to lay it out to people so that they understand why do, you, why do we even bother to look at all these methods? And to answer my own question, it's because the sky clock matters. And anyone who's grown a garden damn well should know it. And even though science has tried to convince us it's Holcomb, anyone who's grown anything understands that that basil plant is not doing what the, you know, the same thing when the sun rises as when the sun's at midday. The influence is indisputable from my point of view in the same way that many herbs, when harvested at a full moon, they're more potent. But do you want to take a crack at, at the Zubinel Shanubi, Zubinel Shamali thing at all, or do you want to move along? No, yeah, that's an excellent point. In my view, that's that's the whole point, right? Because as soon as we start labeling like, okay, this is a separate constellation, let's call it a sign, let's call it Libra, in a sense, you're actually taking away from the sky there because Libra is a fantastic example because, like you said, it's the only sign, so to speak, that doesn't use uh, or that isn't living. And in this case, in history, it's been associated with both, like you said, the cloth Scorpio, but also is the scales that that Virgo's holding because it's right next to Virgo. So throughout history, Libra's kind of been pushed and pulled between those two constellations. And then eventually, for whatever reason, we settled in that it should be its own constellation. But this is the point. The point is, is that it doesn't matter how many signs there are and it doesn't matter what we call them. What's important is what happens when something's going to that part of the sky. When, some, when something's getting activated, whether it's the solstice or whatever it is, that's the important thing. And that's where the fixed stars really come in because those 
stars of Libra still have a significance, whether you consider them a part of Scorpio or a part of Virgo or it's their own constellation. The point is there's something that's happening when they're passing through and it honestly doesn't really matter what you call it, as long as we all agree on that, we can you know, have some sort of language to, to be able to describe when something's happening in that particular part of the sky. So this is exactly why I started getting interested in looking at all the different methods. And I started zeroing in on sidereal and Vedic um, because I thought it was important that if there is anything to this, when you look up, you should be using the darn sky you see, not this calculation. So let's back up a minute to what's typically called tropical astrology. Um, there are other versions. So what's going on there is everyone has been told that there's this thing called precession of the equinoxes, which the premise for that is that we're on a spinning globe that is spinning a bit like a top. And so it wobbles. And so when all these systems were put together, that was the accurate method to use regardless of what you see in the sky so you'll see all these people when you know let's use the equinox athen as an example so the age that you're currently in is said to be derived from where the spring equinox what constellation it's in well right now every single person can listen and go to early to mid-March, which is in the neighborhood of when the equinox happens. Um, it does not happen on the day it's announced, by the way, just so you understand that. That's one of the things we proved. Um, and you can see that it's really pretty close to Pisces, closer to Pisces than everything. And yet people are saying we're already over into the age of Aquarius. Well, what's happened here is because of the supposed procession of the equinox, we've slipped a sign. So everyone's been convinced that you just ignore what you see in, in the sky and you make these calculations to go back to some other apparent setup. Did I did I describe that well at all? That's that's exactly correct. Exactly. Um, yeah. So the spring equinox rises in Pisces. It's been rising in Pisces for well over 2,000 years. Pisces is a very large constellation, which is why we've been in the age of Pisces for so long. And that's so important because the age that we're in is representing, again, astrologically in terms of these qualities being activated um, in the collective. And so Piscean qualities have to do, they're very different from Aquarius, Piscean qualities have to do with spirituality, gaining greater spiritual growth, receptivity, um, acceptance, presence, peace. It's where we see a lot of like like modern spiritual religions coming from from over the past 2,000 years, like Christianity and such. And so we're still very much developing these. Um, now, the reason people say we're in the age of Aquarius is, again, not relative to the sky at all, because as you pointed out, we're actually still going to be in the age of Pisces for at least a few more hundred years with this. But uh, yeah, Aquarius represents more of technology and innovation, which we've seen. And the reason people are saying we're in this age of Aquarius is because if you give an even 30 degrees to Pisces, meaning you shrink it, then yeah, we would be in the age of Aquarius. But here's where it gets interesting because we don't just have signs in astrology. We also have houses and houses can be divided up into even 30 degrees because houses represent the sky. So the sky, regardless of where the stars are at a particular time, because they're you know constantly moving, whatever part of that sky we're looking at, that stays fixed. That is that house, as we call it. And so technically, you could say that we are in the age of Pisces. However, we are in the 11th house when it comes to the spring equinox. And that's been going on since the uh, Industrial Revolution, which is why we've seen more technological growth and Aquarius type of energy. But it's very important to incorporate the Pisces as well. We are still very much in this age of gaining greater 
receptivity, and spiritual development with Pisces. So I, I would suggest to you, Athan, that one of the biggest reasons people think we're in the age of Aquarius is because of popular culture. Because if it was either the late 60s or early 70s, a band called The Fifth Dimension came out with the song most people have heard of, This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. And that was a, a big song back in the day. So there was popular culture pushing the idea that we were moving into Aquarius. But let's go back a minute um, to the equinoxes. One of the things that we did in the forums of Crow 777 Radio, and this was based on the lunar wave. When I filmed the first lunar wave back in 2012, um, it was close to the equinox. And I kept thinking there's got to be a relationship here. And over years, I went back and looked. And then by chance, I did date and time lookups and all this work. And I realized, holy smokes, they announced that the fall equinox was, I forget, a few days before I filmed the lunar wave. But in truth, the day that I filmed the lunar wave was equal day and equal night. So this launched this whole discussion, what the heck is an equinox really? And what we finally all arrived at as a logical way to move forward is we take it at, at what it means, equal day and night. So what we decided, and who knows if this will be corrected over time, is that a true equinox has to have equal day and night. It's what the word is derived from, and we looked at old definitions is where we came. Here's what we what we discovered is true of equinoxes and provable and reproducible to show others that it's provable. The news comes on and it tells you, okay, the fall equinox is today or the spring equinox is today, and it's not unless it's by chance. It's wholly dependent on geography. It is no different than a person in New York seeing the sunrise and calling a guy in California and saying, okay, it's sunrise. And the guy in California is going, no, it's not. <laughs> Sun's not rising here because it's wholly dependent on geography. This is what we proved. Typically in the spring, in the beginning to mid-March-ish, the news will come on and say, okay, this day is the spring equinox. It's almost always the 20th, 21st, or 22nd. What we found in the United States is typically the true equinox for one part of the country starts three days earlier. Uh, in this case, I think the last one we had, it was the 19th, I'm guessing, from memory. I could be off by a day. But if you go a little further south, it's a day later. And a little further south, it's a day later. So in the United States alone, um, there are three bands of geography that would determine the day you experience the equinox. If we go over to the fall equinox, typically the day they announced, again, the 21st or 22nd of September is typically when they announce it. It's going to be a few days after. After that, that the actual equal day and night happens. So do you want to take a shot at all that? Yeah, I mean, that's, I totally agree. I mean, using the actual visible sky once again, right. you know, right. and so, then so, trying to simplify it. Yeah. Well, well, see, that's, I'm drawing this line because we were seeing all these claims from all these different kinds of astrology. And we said, none of this makes sense. We can't prove any of it. So let's go and do observation on our own. And by the way, there are some in the forums of Crow 777 that are actually, we had assumed that the solstices were fixed and that those couldn't be jacked around. But we're beginning to find that the solstices might not be uh, being reported correctly. And so people understand 
in mid June, there's what's called the summer solstice. What it's what what it actually does mark is the highest extent of the sun. Now, if you go to what we call Christmas, which is actually the winter solstice, that's the lowest extent of the sun. And so we figured there's really no way to fudge that, right? Because that that's the highest and the lowest extent of the sun of the year. And what we're finding is those may be off, but we need to mark the solstice we're about to have and then do it again in a year to know for sure. But I figured I'd put all that out there because it does relate to portions of Vedic astrology and sidereal because what it is is human beings doing direct observation to try to prove a thing, but not only prove it, have it be able to present the information out to the world so they can replicate what we did. So there's all that. Anything you'd like to add? No, I mean, I totally agree. Use the visible sky. I mean, it's, it's that simple. It's something we've been doing forever and it's only been up until recently we've um, starting, you know, deciding to simplify things to make it easier, more conceptual, but it's actually taking away from nature, going outside, looking up at the sky, seeing exactly what's going on. Athen, do you see anything nefarious with that kind of doing? Me personally, yes. <laughs> I mean, I personally believe that um, there are people who are using the actual astrology, for example, and are aware of this stuff. And yeah, and they have intentions, and they have definitely a lot of uh, benefits they they think they're getting by uh, deceiving the population into using these old, outdated concepts and systems. Yeah. So we, we should underlie why this is important. So if we go back to the spagyric episodes that we've done, where human beings are planting plants to the sky clock, harvesting the plants to the sky clock, and then making remedies and other things that, I don't know if it's fair to call them medicine, because people have a modern conception of what that means. So I'll just call them remedies. The idea is, is that a human being can interact with nature and from our point of view, nature is perfect, but this human being can exalt what can be derived from nature by timing it to the natural world around us. So the idea here is if someone was doing something in the world and thought today was the equinox, but it wasn't, which always symbolizes balance, but there is a difference between fall and spring. I'm not going to get into that. The point I would make is in the spring, they're almost certainly three days off, and in the fall, they're almost certainly or five days off, and we can prove this all day long. So that's the real nefarious side of things, right? Athen is people think they are timing correctly, but they've been led astray from what's actually observable and provable. Right, exactly. And and that's where the dangers come in, and especially from the astrological side, because you know you have to consider most of the world actually uses astrology and believes in it. And um, if people are planning certain things around certain events or days, they think something's going on astrologically when it's not, or that's actually happening on another day. Yeah, you're basically changing a lot of. I mean, not only are you prohibiting people's personal development, but you're actually changing things collectively, like the collective consciousness, and you're able to actually direct it and manipulate it in a way that keeps people in the dark and not using certain time periods for certain things when they should be. Well, well said. It's a, it's a good way to, to lead us away from being in tune with the natural world. So this would be a good place to re-mention daylight saving time. Is there a better example of detaching human beings from the natural cycles of our world? In other words, the bird and the squirrel out in your yard are far more in tune with the natural world than we human beings are because we're relying on calendars that have been created and timepieces. And as I've stated so often, 
your cell phone in your pocket does not know when it's noon. And it'd be lucky if it's right a couple times a year. Um, noon is when the sun is at its highest extent for the day, called solar noon. And yet our clocks will tell us it's noon at all these other times. But daylight savings time is case in point. Uh, when does daylight savings time happen? Well, of course, right at the equinoxes, right? And it artificially jacks the clock around an hour. And I always use the example, it's attributed to some Indian chief, but who knows where it actually came from. This was the saying put forward about the implementation of daylight savings time. Only a white man would think that he can cut a foot off the bottom of a blanket, sew it to the top of the blanket, and think he's changed something. But the reason I always retell this idea is because it is a perfect example of a thing implemented which has no provable use. You can't get more light out of a day. A day has as much light. If you want more light in the day, you got to get up earlier, basically. And yet we have this thing called daylight savings time. So anything you want to add on that note before we move on, Athen? Well, yeah, it's a really good point. The whole calendar system, the whole calendar system we're using right now is completely disconnected from nature. Right. Um, daylight savings. And then, and then why do we start the new year on this day arbitrary january when we started on january 1st on that particular time when the sun you know is in sagittarius like well what are these significant things so um yeah i mean i think that's that's what's happening unfortunately and people are becoming more and more disconnected from nature which which is actually the simplest thing right because like you said like the, the creatures and, and, and squirrels and things it's like if we were just connected to nature um, we would already know these things. We'd be much more in tune with, oh, I'm feeling like doing this today, or I'm feeling like this is important, or I'm thinking about this. Like, notice our thoughts when we go out into nature and stuff, like how they change. So being connected to nature, in my opinion, is like the number one thing to personal development and like growth for humanity. Uh, and to sever us from that is like, it's catastrophic. I mean, that's like, you know, to me, in my opinion, probably the worst thing you can do is disconnect a man from nature in that sense. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't have stated that better. And I think that's the whole purpose of it. And, and being disconnected from nature creates fertile ground in a human mind to be led into fantasy. And as you stated, and as I state all the time, nature from our point of view is perfect. When a dang thing needs to happen, it will happen when it needs to happen. And it is the simplest purest, truest way forward. And all these other artificial systems that get put in, and let's look at the calendar for a second. Even, even the name of what the calendar holds, a month, how many people recall that the word month is drawn from an older word, month, because the moon was critical in deciding what the division of what we now call a month is. And as a matter of fact, there's still places in the world, uh, the Jewish calendar still recognizes uh, the importance of dividing the year with a moon. Uh, I think they use a, a solely a solar loony calendar or something like that. They've kind of combined it, but in many of the Asian cultures, they still mark their New Year's uh, by the moon. So I think those are critical things to to mention. So before we move on, let's let's just give a quick overview of what Vedic astrology is. And the reason I think it's important is because I often point out that a lot of times in this world, if you go back to the oldest things you can find, you get a lot closer to where you'd like to go. And I don't think anyone can argue that Vedic is probably one of the oldest traditions. I don't think it has escaped manipulation. But let's just give a quick overview of what is Vedic astrology. And do we accurately tie that? Well, I guess we'll just say we tie it to India. Is that good enough for the sake of conversation? 
Yeah, that's that's what appears to be its roots and its origins and where it's most practiced. So yeah, we can, you know, it's also called Hindu uh, astrology and we can call it Indian, sure. But yeah, so I would agree. I mean, it's definitely the most ancient in terms of uh, astrological practice, for sure. And I do believe that prior to, like I said, around that Babylonian, what we call in the Western world, that kind of Babylonian time period. I mean, prior to that, I do believe Vedic astrologers, as well as all astrologers and everyone using astrology, used the actual visible sky. I do believe they were using true sidereal prior to that. And then at some point from the dynasties or whatever, um, the population started to use a more simplified version. So luckily they are still using sidereal where the West isn't, like I said, the West, the stuff like on pop astrology, the stuff everyone thinks is their sun sign and stuff that's completely off. So at least the Vedic have maintained some of their roots. and They're still using sidereal and they do have some really good fundamental meanings of the stars and they do use the visible stars a lot in the astrological practice. So in terms of current popular systems, Vedic is by far the the most truest to the visible sky, what I would call nature. Yeah. And and to underscore the importance, there are still parts of the world like certain Vedic usages and in parts of China where old school medicine is still practiced with natural remedies um, that are totally geared to the sky clock. And as a matter of fact, in some places like China that I'm aware of, uh, there are sayings that says, if you see a doctor and diet, what you eat and consume was not part of what the diet told you, then you really haven't seen a doctor at all. And this also relates directly to the sky clock. I can't tell you how many books, and uh, I always mention the modern day edit, um, how, how different things you read from the modern era are. I always try to get back as far as I can. One of the things I did is I got dictionaries on astrology from as old as I could get to see what they're saying, because of course it defines every term. And uh, I went all the way back to Ptolemy, Manilius, just the oldest things that are claimed to be oldest writings I can get. And the problem anyone who does this is going to run into is the same problem with the ages. I own a book that tells me the age change into Aquarius was 1881, which I thought was likely for a while, and now I really don't. Then, actually, I found this really weird book, which was a Jewish rabbi. These guys are supposed to be completely disconnected from any idea of astrology, trying to tell other rabbis that the whole of Jewishness is based on astrology, and he marks the age change in 1981, exactly 100 years later. That's kind of a side concern. In some of the oldest definitions, there was this idea that the color of things helped you define what they might mean. And I thought this was interesting because Jason and I have done a lot of work on cymatics and the mysterious world of color and frequency and vibration and all these things. And I'll give you one example just so you can let me know, is there any any way of thinking like this in sidereal? Um, because I truly want to know. Uh, the example I'll give is in a, a astrological dictionary that was written in the very early 1900s. There was a man who was trying to say, there's a lot of hocus pocus going on here, and I'm trying to bring reason and logic and ways to demonstrate what's in this dictionary. One of the claims he makes is that the older practicers tried to say things like the star Aldebaran, I'll use it as an example. And so people know this is almost the eye of Taurus. Maybe you could even consider it the bullseye. It's got kind of an orangey red hue to it. And the claim in this old astrological dictionary was that older people said because of its color, it was negative in its effect. 
And then he went on to say in his more modern version of an astrological dictionary that he couldn't accept that kind of a definition based on color. But I was torn because I know damn well that when I'm watching my television and I see some vibrant red compared to some vibrant blue, there is in fact a different effect going on there. So I will ask you, is there any tradition in sidereal astrology that recognizes color in any way? In terms of the signs, yes, that would be using certain signs at certain frequencies. So like if something's passing through Taurus, for example, it's going to emit a certain frequency, like I was saying, a frequency of life of that side of our personality and of life. In terms of actual stars, not to my knowledge, but there is in the sense, like you said, the reason they probably associated Aldebaran with more of a negative quality is because of its reddish hue. And that seems to be consistent. Uh, you can also see that with uh, Scorpio as well. Antares is also a very red color, and that's you know, right. probably the most like challenging star in astrology. So I think, yes, from a like a fundamental standpoint, but, but I don't think in such a way that it's, I could be wrong, but I don't think in such a way that it's actually made into a system where you could apply it to all stars, which is actually very interesting. And I think something like that should be used for sure. So if I'm not mistaken, Antares is sometimes described as the heart of the scorpion. And boy, there's a there's a whole tale. Do you want to get into the tale of Scorpio? Um, because I think I can demonstrate that there was a time that constellation was not the negative connotation of a scorpion that it is currently, but at one time it was the lofty eagle. But let's set that aside for a second, maybe. But it shows the changes of all the things that we can find and the frustrating nature of trying to arrive at something you feel like you can depend on. But here's my problem with color. We've done so much work about the natural world, and I know damn well that if I go out into my garden and there's a flower on an herb that is blue, I know certainly from all the old alchemist and spagyric work of people who wanted to use those plants as remedies, all the things they could understand just knowing that the bloom is blue. They could understand that it's uh, feminine that the polarity is probably negative, depending on the type of blue they're looking at, to some degree, the vibrational rate of the plant. And this could correspond with all these other zodiacal concerns. So I could never divorce from my idea that color matters here. And when I go out with my telescope and I look up, I'm always paying attention. Like, who can forget the first time that they saw Venus through a telescope? It is like the most piercing diamond, brilliant white, or for that matter, Sirius, the star Sirius, the brightest of the stars. When you see these things, uh, I can find accounts from way, way, way back, supposedly, that make a lot of to-do out of the fact that you're looking at this piercing diamond light. And then you go over to Antares, and it's this kind of yellowy, orangey, heart of the scorpion, negative connotation. And could we actually argue that when we look at Aldebaran, the eye of the bull in Taurus, is that why we have a red bullseye on a dartboard? I'm just saying. So from my point of view, it feels to me, and I don't know if you agree with me, like a lot of information has been lost because for the life of me, logically, my well-researched mind cannot let go that there is all this meaning in the color of a thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think that should be the case. As we start using more true sidereal and actually look use the actual stars, systems like this need to come out. I mean, I've never even thought about it that much until you just mentioned it, actually. But if you did give this both luminosity and also color hue to the star, you could derive so much meaning from that. Good you know? point. And so as you combine that with the actual location and then the actual constellation it's in and all that, you're just deriving more and more information. Yeah. 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you, when I went and got that map, that sky chart from the 1600s, the first two things that jumped out at me was the constellation of Libra was drawn differently than everything else. I mean, it was like poking me in the eye, screaming at me, one of these things is not like the others. And the funny thing is, is I had gone there to get permission to film it to look at that particular constellation. So here's all these other living animals or made up mythical beasts all drawn out and shaded nicely. And you get to Libra, it's jammed in, it's a line drawing with crosshatch shading different than all the others. But the other thing I noticed is they had the magnitude of every star in the chart, which tells you certainly what you just pointed out half of what you just pointed out is important. Otherwise, why would people have drawn these elaborate star charts with thousands of stars and figured out the magnitude, the brightness, that's what magnitude means, of every one, but even to some degree, there was an indication of color. So I'll ask you, from my point of view, the reason I think it's important to meet with people like you and to compare all these other supposed knowledge bases is because we're kind of like babes in the wood, man. We understand that we've lost a lot of information, or at least that's what I feel, and that from direct observation, logic, reason, and experience, we can start to put together some of the things we've lost. Do you think that's an accurate way to view what we're talking about? That's exactly how I see it. Um, I think we had all this information in the past. It was just, again, part of nature. We looked up at the sky. We made we talked about stories. We made predictions. And then since then, the information's gotten lost. And anything we can do to get back to the nature of what we're looking at, so luminosity or magnitude and you know the hue and all of this, um, is just incorporating something that would come naturally in nature that we did before this looking like looking at Antares. It's a scary looking star. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious. You know, these are the kind of things that I think we need to incorporate more and more with. And, and just so, you know, it's clear, like I don't believe technology is a bad thing or anything. I think technology needs to be used in order to help us reconnect with nature. So these technological advances and theories and stuff we're rediscovering, we can use technology to really expand upon that and make it even better in terms of understanding more about these natural phenomenons and things. Yeah, I want to agree with you all day long on that point. And it should be that we should easily agree, but I'm I'm just almost certain now that the people that control the technology are pushing the natural world aside and replacing with artificial systems. But Jason, let me get you in here. I know I'm bogarting this episode. Every time we start talking about stars, my mind soars high until it hits its head on the glass ceiling. Is there anything you want to get in here, Jason? I think the important thing that uh, I would like to bring up is, it could be a brief description, but why the things people read in the uh, newspapers and things like that, what we consider the, the daily horoscopes kind of thing, why they're really not accurate and why folks shouldn't put any kind of faith into them. Yeah, so so the stuff in the pop astrology, that's the Western astrology that I was talking about earlier being like totally off. So that's, again, very simple. Everyone, almost everyone, I think, uh, even in the Western world, knows kind of what their sun sign is. So it's super easy to just pick up the newspaper and then then make some sort of prediction like that. But again, oversimplifying it is not the actual accurate information. If they were using everyone's actual sun sign and the rest of their chart, too, because there's more than just your sun sign. The moon was in a certain location. The other planets were in a certain location. And all of that contributes to everyone's unique personality and life purpose. But, you know, it's simplified, right? So that you're looking at not only the wrong constellations, but you're also looking at just one planet. And then you're deriving some sort of prediction from that. And to an extent, you know, 
I'm sure it's at some level somewhat accurate. I do believe the mainstream system, because of the influence it has on the collective, does have some accuracy to it. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, it's not using the actual soul roots of the person and the person's true self in terms of making those predictions. So you may, you know, read the pop astrology thing and then, you know, you're going about your day in maybe a way that's very surface or not truly connected to your true self or not connected to nature. And there could be so much more if um, you're looking at the whole chart on a day to day sort of basis. Well, you make, you make a good point there. What you can convince people is real uh, certainly does affect the real world. But from my point of view, I guess I could equate, if I was going to use modern ideas, uh, the, the astrology you see in the newspapers about like turning on the Kardashians, about as much value there. And, you know, you said most people know their sun sign, but I think that we could argue at them that if they're using typical Western astrology, they may be a full sign off, right? So someone who thinks they're a Virgo is actually a Leo. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's where it really gets interesting. So once you first of all, start with your actual sun sign and you find out what that is, do know that's only a portion of your being. And if you ever resonated off of this mainstream sun sign, look at the rest of your chart, because I almost guarantee there's elements in your other chart of what you thought was associated with this other sign that is being represented in other areas. And by knowing what that area is, makes it that much more like specific and accurate for you. Because you'll notice like a lot of people will just say arbitrary stuff like, oh, I'm definitely a Libra because uh, I can be, I don't know, like a, a peacekeeper or something. But there's <laughs> there's so many other aspects of the chart that can show that more specifically why that peacekeeper energy is coming through, not because the sun's in Libra, for example. Well, one thing that strikes me about so much of the pop astrology is it tries to be black and white, cut and dry, this or that, and it completely divorces its things from things that I think have value, like alchemy or spagyrics, where we get these philosophical principles that that'll enable us to think about the world in unique ways, each of us. So here's these pretty well-defined philosophical principles that take elements, but not in an elemental way that science has taught us, where this is a thing I can bang it on the table and that's an element. It's this whole other thing. It's an idea. It's a philosophical idea, but it is so malleable that no matter how different the person coming to try to use the system is, it fits them. And they may give a description of the world around them in a more unique way than anyone else before them or since has, but it's not wrong because these philosophical principles were put together to encompass everything, the entirety of nature. And if there's one thing we know about nature, the one thing we absolutely know is true is change. Uh, in the moment I just tried to address, the world has already changed into something else since then. And so a lot of this has come under the kind of modern scientism ideas of everything is black and white and here's the line you cut on and nature doesn't work that way for me anyhow yeah exactly um simplifying it yeah it's dual dual thinking yeah left right positive negative um very very simple stuff but in truth there is variance there's there's like it's like barometric energy and like, again, with the astrology, like with the constellations, there's no like specific time when something enters Taurus. There's a blend. You go from Aries and you slowly start to blend the energy into Taurus. And in between there is this kind of grayish area of more of just combining both of those qualities, which is super important because every day, like you said, it's constantly, there's every second, there's subtle changes. And that's obviously seen in the sky because we're, you know, the stars are moving. But it's just blending. Everything's blending into one moment to the next, from one thing into the next thing. 
And um, once you start to start drawing lines and say, okay, this is when this starts and this, you know, and ends and all that, then, you know, you really do remove yourself from that subtle process of like slowly transitioning into a much more natural state of whatever, yeah, the sign is or the quality or the experience. You know, it's one of the reasons I started using the word sky clock because I have grown gardens and I know certainly the effects of the sky on the world we live, but uh, so much of so-called astrology, even we go back to the fifth dimension song, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, it's been made to look like hokum. You pick up your Sunday paper and there's this hocus pocus dominocus astrology there, and it's been all made to look silly. And that's part of what we're up against here. Either there's value in a thing or there's not. And uh, what gets me, is there's so many examples. People who grow things have to know that the sky clock has a direct bearing on what happens in their garden. It's observable, it's provable, but let's take something a little more obscure, like let's take car logos. Is there a car logo in the Western world that is not encoding Saturn? I think there's one or two you could pull up, like Aries or the Dodge Ram, which I said Aries because that's what it makes you think of, and that's probably what it's coded to. But look at all the the Saturn encoding and all the car logos. Even if you take something like Chevy, someone would look at that and say, well, that doesn't look like Saturn. But what they're missing is that it's a picture of Saturn cubed, and almost all of them are bound by the circle. And so uh, it's hard to try to get people to focus back on why the hell would these major corporations be encoding aspects of the sky clock if it didn't matter? I've used the example of how many Fortune 1000 or 500, whatever the hell the big companies are called, set up in the springtime when at the spring equinox, there's going to be the largest release of energy that this world's ever going to see, ever. When you think about the amount of energy that comes pouring, out of our what we call earth at the equinox everything turns green all this heat comes to us all these new births are happening if you start to wrap your mind around and try to quantify which you cannot the amount of energy pouring out of the earth at that time and yet you can still think to yourself the sky clock plays no role when in fact it is the equinox that is supposed to be marking that point i mean are you with me yeah absolutely 100 percent These are the shifts and changes that we would be aware of if we were listening, if we were connected. What do you make of the idea that so many of the the, uh, car logos uh, can be associated with Saturn? Do you have any point of view that you'd like to reflect on? Yeah, that brings up a really good point because Saturn... So it represents Kronos for those of you like in terms of Western modern kind of understanding of planetary energy. It's a very, it's basically the part of the sky that, or the planet in this case, that represents depth and the most densifying sense. So like earth energy to like the utmost. So it deals a lot with physical success and physical achievement in the, in the, in the, like the densest physical form. The opposite to that, for example, to contrast it is Jupiter, which is represented by Zeus, which represents more about expansion and optimism and philosophy and spirituality and things of that nature. So the fact that these major corporations are using Saturn is absolutely no surprise because this is the planet that represents material dominance and material limitation and structure and building of that kind of material success that they're all after. So they're using that frequency, that energy propagating it into the collective unconscious so every time you think of that car logo or whatever it is you're propagating more of that energy towards them 
And um, yeah, and you know, in my opinion, that's what it uh, attributes to a lot of their successes, or at least from the spiritual side to it. And maybe Athen, we should agree. To, will you? How about if we use the word luminaries instead of planets, so the audience doesn't lose their damn mind like they did a couple of episodes back? But uh, to get back to Saturn, uh, the metal there, from an alchemical standpoint, would be lead. That tells you something. Quite often, one of the colors associated is black. But I read a very old account, and I want to know if you think there's any merit to this account of the idea of Saturn. You always hear these old accounts that there was some magical golden age in the past sometime, and Saturn was our sun, of course. And every time I think about that, I think, really, this has to be allegory or it has to, you know, logically, I can't put one and one together until I began to understand some of the meaning behind what that luminary means. So how's this for maybe a way to try to communicate it in the current age? We find ourselves under the current conditions. There's almost nothing positive about the influence of Saturn. It's almost like if you're not the best you can be, it's going to be a cruel taskmaster and it's going to beat you with a baseball bat till you get it right. But the flip side of that would be is if there was a supposed golden age where people were all in harmony and everything was perfect, there would be nothing negative about Saturn, that kind of yin and yang, negative and positive polarity that we address so often to the point where in an age of perfection like that, you probably wouldn't even realize Saturn existed as a luminary. Do you think there's any value in trying to describe it in that way? Yeah, exactly. And that's the polarity, right? So the Saturn, Jupiter, Saturn represents all contraction in the universe. Jupiter represents all the expansion in our existence. And when we go through certain ages, it represents more of one kind of energy than the other. So this was also like in, in Greek philosophy and stuff, they talked about the ages between Kronos and then Zeus. Kronos starting the very beginning of man in that sense of being a very dense, like Bronze Age kind of situation, and then slowly going into more of the expansive philosophical age of Zeus. So it's definitely like this is representing, again, these kinds of time periods that we're in representing one energy over another and what i think the elite as i call them in this case what they're using is they're using that particular frequency for that thing and i think a lot of them are, are much more tied to saturn energy not because saturn energy is negative or anything like that or bad in and of itself it actually it's it plays a very important role in life it's like half of you know it's it's the contracting elements of life but they do it in such a way to get material gains because I believe what the elite are doing is they're really harvesting physical energy, like materially, like here on Earth. And so they're using that Saturn energy to do that. But Saturn still being a very important part of our personality and a part of life that we can utilize. Like you said, it's that stern teacher. It keeps us in check. It makes us wake up in the morning and do routines and have structure in our life and foundations and commitments and responsibilities. But balancing that, Balancing that with the expansive Jupiter energy, philosophy, insights, ideas, spirituality needs to be played into a role with that. So there's an imbalance, I feel like, where the collective is being led into more Saturnine energy in certain ways and then more Jupiter energy in others that benefit them. But instead, what we should be doing is seeing, like, being, having more responsibility and working on our own personal growth, personally using Saturn and Jupiter versus Saturn and Jupiter energy being bestowed upon us, like told that we should be using it in this particular way or, you know, them using the energy to direct the collective consciousness in that particular path. Once we turn the energy inward into our personal growth, then it's like we're using Saturn and Jupiter energy to go about our own life journey and our collective purpose. 
Right. For me, I would describe it as the selfish misuse of a tool. Basically, it's like a knife, right? I can use a knife to carve a beautiful statue or I could use a knife to harm someone. It's no different in my point of view. And I would further point out the idea of Saturn uh, that would encompass the idea of the Grim Reaper, right? Time, Kronos, the fact that we're all going to die, that constraint that each of us knows that's some of the maybe what we would consider more negative signs. But I would further point out, um, you mentioned Jupiter, which is Zeus, which is Jove. We even have words that come to us from antiqui- antiquity that reflect the Jupiter energy idea, and that is jovial, happy. And to be perfectly blunt, it's exactly why Jason and I run the podcast the way we do. We leverage off these jovial, positive growth ideas, which is why we released the podcast on Thursday and why we record the days we do. But we're going to wrap it up here and prepare to come back for the second hour. In the second hour, uh, Athen, I want to start to take on the age of censorship that we find ourselves in and try to see if you can reflect from your point of view using sidereal ideas to see if we can put any legs under you know, how or why these things are going on. I think most people are aware that we just saw a huge YouTube scrub again where people are their channels are basically being killed, which from my point of view is wholly, wholly, wholly going against the natural born rights of a human being for free speech and thought as long as those people are doing no harm, which most of them are not. Anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 164 to a close. We'll be back for hour two, and I think we may open up with the idea of censorship and how that might be reflected in what I call the sky clock. There it is, man. Hope you join us all over at crow 7 radiocom for the free speech zone, which is hour two. Cheers.